Hello everyone, and welcome to your Christadelphian Library, where we discuss Christadelphian books with the goal of expanding biblical knowledge and stimulating spiritual thought. This is Brother Andrew Ackerman, and today we are looking at the book Holding the Head by Michael Ashton. This book has always held a special place in my heart as a source of guidance and encouragement as a disciple, from beginning my walk to reevaluating my way Zionwards, provides us as the reader with a book to pick up and read from anywhere. Whenever we need guidance or strengthening on our different actions that we take as followers of Christ and our Heavenly Father. Holding the Head is a treatise on discipleship. It shows us the ups and downs of being a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, dealing with harder subjects of sin and failing, to the wondrous joy that comes as a reward of our service, whether those rewards be right now or in the coming kingdom of God. And to begin with, I'd like to read a part of the foreword that describes the purpose of the book and hopefully will give an insight into what to expect from our reading. Discipleship is all about following. There could be no disciples unless there was a master and no followers unless there was a leader. The Lord is master and leader of each individual disciple, but also of many disciples who together form his body, a worldwide community of believers devoted to his service. Each disciple serves the Lord while living among those who generally have no regard for him and whose motivations are often contrary to the principles he taught. True believers focus always on his example so that the issues of life are seen if at all possible, as he would see them, so that God's name is honoured in every aspect of life. His motivation was always to do his Father's will, and he set up the example so that others might follow his steps. The relationship between disciples and the Lord is therefore described in Scripture as one between the body of believers and its head, who is Christ. Disciples are encouraged at all times to think of him if they are to grow to be more like him. This idea of growth is of spiritual maturity, adopting the Lord's mind, his thinking, and his ways. So there we see it, a wonderful summation of our purpose as disciples of Christ. We live our lives with Christ as our aim, striving to set him up as our example of all our actions and that's really the point of this book. It encourages us to choose who we follow, to set up Christ as our goal and motivation, that through our actions, he can live through us in a continuation of his work. And so my goal is to bring out some snippets from this book over the next few minutes that will help you to put the Lord first. And so, in order to teach this point, chapter one begins with, Follow me. They are only two words, but they are among the hardest and most rewarding in all the scriptures. To those who would be his disciples, the Lord Jesus said, Follow me. He then proceeded to set an example that none of his disciples have ever come close to approaching. Yet, the call still sounds forth, and the followers of Jesus press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. As runners in the race for life eternal, they must strain every sinew, keep their eyes fixed on the joy set before them, and be totally reassured of victory by looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. 
Theory and practice do not always coincide, however, and every disciple experiences times when the concentration slips, times when the focus is not clearly on the Lord and the kingdom to come. The world tries to press all its sons into the mold, and worldly pressures quickly claim attention and divert the energies from the pursuit of godliness. Without constant vigilance, the grip on heavenly things loosens, and instead of holding fast to the head, the disciple finds himself in the grips of other claims upon his time, his energy, and his passions. Here we see an open and honest beginning to this topic. We are promised great and wonderful rewards for our service, but it's not as simple as the words seem, and our first article warns of the trials that get in the way of servitude. It speaks about temptation and sin, the trials that we cause for ourselves, which are only worsened by environment in these last days. And he approaches this later on in the article. Every age has its difficulties. They may differ in nature, but the effects are the same. The hold on faith is loosened, and the vision of the future is dimmed. It happened in the lives of the first man and the first woman, even though they lived in a much more perfect environment than the one that presently exists. Throughout subsequent human history, the effects of sin have eaten away at the commitment of the best of men, save the one who stands supreme. The article continues to detail sin, showing us its nature of erosion against our godly values. But it finishes with a reminder of hope and encouragement. Following the Lord closely has serious implications. Disciples will not be spared the testing of suffering and disappointment, but God has promised with every temptation the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. So when a disciple suffers for well-doing, it is acceptable to God because that was Jesus' way. These trials of our life, of sin and of suffering, are given to us for a purpose. And we read of that way of escape. But ultimately, the chapter ends with a reminder of exactly what these traits are for. Times arise in every believer's life when he feels under pressure. It may be a personal weakness, concern about a loved one, tension within family or ecclesia, a challenge to faith from outside or inside the brotherhood, disillusionment because of the behavior of one previously held in high regard, unreasonable demands of worldly employers, financial straightness, disappointment at the apparent delay in Christ's return, or of any of the vast number of different difficulties that can arise in daily life. The only answer in all such situations is to apply Christ-like thinking to get close to the Saviour in every possible way. To move away from Him is to lose focus and direction. Clarity and guidance come from looking through His eyes and realizing how every human problem finds its solution only through God's Word becoming flesh. Each difficulty and problem, whatever its nature, is another call to follow Jesus and to keep following. Disciples are called to overcome yet quickly learned that it is an impossible task unaided. Any and every victory is his. Sins are forgiven for his sake. Temptations are overcome by the power of God's word and the Lord's example. Problems are put into perspective through relating them to a sacrifice, 
Strife is ended by the quiet word of the Prince of Peace. Surely this must be an encouragement to us as we battle against the troubles of mortality. Every trial that we endure, every sin that we wrestle with, these all bring us closer to emulating our head, the Lord Jesus Christ, in our service. The next article I'd like for us to read from is titled, One Body. As the title tells us, this chapter will focus on the unity of our ecclesial life. As a group with one leader, it is imperative that we must all follow Christ with the same spirit and attitude. And this is told to us from the chapter's beginning. There is one head, even Christ. Paul, therefore, informed the brothers and sisters at Corinth that Christ cannot be divided, by which he meant that one head cannot rule over a body that chooses to serve many different leaders. The presence of only one head demands that the body too must be one, giving rise to some important implications for those who are members of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. In order to teach us these implications, the author then likens our service to that of a soldier, saying, The image of soldiers in Christ's army powerfully confirms the message about one body, for in order to operate satisfactorily, an army must act unitedly, obeying implicitly the directions issued by its commanding officer. In whatever part of the army individual soldiers may serve, they are joined together by virtue of the common aim which they all share. A divided body results from not having clear direction or from rebellion within the ranks. In the Christ body, there is no lack of clarity in the commands issued by the master, so division occurs only because his commands prove unacceptable to some, or because they serve another commander despite claiming to serve Christ. The Lord's intentions are clear. In his great intercessory prayer before his agony, Jesus on three occasions expressed his desire that his disciples may be one. He based this on his own unity with the Father, and prayed that his disciples may be one in us, sharing that unity. He asked specifically that God would keep his disciples in his name, for example, as part of his glorious purpose, whereby all the world would give him glory and honor and praise. Jesus declared the glory he personally shared with God in such a way that he was able to tell Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father in John 14. He wants his disciples to have the same closeness to the Father's word and the same desire to do his will that he displayed throughout his mortal life. The qualities of the Christ body should thus be the ones revealed in God's name. Mercy, grace, patience, abundant goodness and truth. Such characteristics bind individuals together whereas divisions and schisms are caused when discord, jealousy, anger, and malice are present. The bulk of the chapter shows examples of how these divisions are caused and the damage that they can cause, often leading to the image and character of Christ being redefined as each sect tries to affiliate his or her teaching with their viewpoint. But the final part of our chapter deals with the solution, 
how an ecclesia can avoid these schisms and instead move with one purpose and will. How can this outcome be prevented? Too often imbalance occurs because individuals try to meet their own needs or operate on the basis of what seems right to them. The touchstone must always be, what did the Lord say and how can we best serve and honour him? But there is something else as well. Alongside an emphasis on the head must be a concern for the body as a whole. It is just as easy to concentrate on one aspect or one part of the brotherhood to the exclusion of all else as it is to press a subject or topic to an extreme or create a point of difference that can grow into a potential division. The needs of our own ecclesia can easily blind us to work in a wider brotherhood that desperately needs help and support. Alternatively, a brother or sister can become so immersed in the work of one of the organizations in the brotherhood that needs much nearer to home are completely overlooked. So keeping in touch with all the various activities of the brotherhood is important. Brothers and sisters should take every opportunity to visit other ecclesias and join in activities that are arranged for the benefit of all. This can be in their own locality or elsewhere, perhaps in conjunction with holidays or work-related travel. Information about the Brotherhood is published in all the world that carries news from ecclesias to each other, and the reports help to build up a picture of what is happening and encourage brothers and sisters to offer assistance and to include particular needs in their personal prayers. The Lord was so concerned for the body that he laid down his life for it, and there can be no greater example to mould our attitude towards our brothers and sisters. As we read in 1 John 3 verse 16, we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And so we see that as Christ laid down his life for those around him, we are required to live our life with that same attitude, giving our lives in service to our brothers and sisters, our every action being for their benefit and care, with the intention of guiding all to the kingdom of God. And it's our Heavenly Father who is the focus of our final section that we'll be reading from today. We've seen that it is imperative in all things to have Christ as our head and our guidance. And our final chapter shows us the effect of holding up the Lord Jesus Christ as our guide. By holding to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our head, we draw closer to him to learn from his example of selfless service. And we also draw closer to his father, who responds by drawing near to each individual believer. We must now take these thoughts to a further and even more exalted stage, for we are instructed to hold fast to our head, who is Christ. It is apparent that throughout his life, he held fast to his head, the Father. The head of Christ is God, Paul declared unambiguously in the first Corinthian letter. We therefore learn from his example because his life was patterned wholly and completely on his Father's. The chapter shows many examples of Christ reaching out to his Father, striving to seek guidance and strength from him in every decision. And this is brought to a wonderful lesson, showing that as following God led him to the cross, it finally brought him to unification with his head, his father. And so we read, 
The father's agenda was his constant guide, as he openly declared, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek mine own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. The road to the cross was always a road leading nearer to his Father, and the glory of his kingdom, and he was growing up into him. He could see the end always approaching, until eventually there was one incident that showed that he was on the final straight. Every step of the way had been prophesied, and the Jewish scriptures were his constant guide. And once all scripture had been fulfilled, they prophesied of his glorification. He said, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. In his great intercessory prayer, Jesus acknowledged that the hour had come for his glorification, and in the process God himself would be glorified. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. The fact that the Lord consistently sought to honor the Father by listening and responding to his word both ensured his own future glory and also glorified God by confirming and acknowledging his eternal purpose. Jesus' example is thus critically important for all his disciples. He always looked to his head, seeking direction, counsel, and strength and his disciples must do the same. Through always holding firmly to the Father, to his word, his purpose, and his commands, Jesus justified the confidence of all the prophetic comments about what would be achieved by the life of outstanding devotion. The divine response was therefore certain. He was raised up by the glory of the Father. In the Father's mercy, the pattern will continue for all who acknowledge the headship of Christ and who hold fast to his wonderful example. And as the apostle wrote, God hath raised us up and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so I'd like to thank you all for listening as we've gone through a few sections of this book. I highly recommend picking up a copy of Holding the Head to read more of the sections within so that hopefully you too can be encouraged in your discipleship. Please join us again next week, where our brother Ethan will be discussing the book Antichrist, Christendom's Final Deception by brother Jason Hensley.